If you have your Bible with you, please turn it to the book of Psalms, number 103, Psalm 103, but uh, we'll not stand and read as we normally do. We'll get there in a few minutes, okay? Heavenly Father, again, I pray that you will fill me with your Spirit and that you will guide and direct each word, each thought, each gesture, that truly our King, the Lord Jesus, might be glorified and honored in an appropriate way. I pray this in His name. Amen. The subject today is England's Queen and our King. And why would I preach on that? Well, because last Monday, uh, early in the morning, I flipped on the TV knowing that her funeral, Queen Elizabeth II's funeral, would be telecast around the world. There had been 10 previous days of mourning, national mourning in England and in the Commonwealth, and on Monday they held the funeral. Boy, what an impressive thing. If I've ever seen anything that was impressive, it was the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. The planning, the preparation was incredible. I understand after doing a little research and reading on it that they had been practicing in an airplane hangar for uh, several years off and on because they knew it was coming at her age. And so they had planned and prepared for literally for years. The flawlessness of that whole thing from beginning to end, the foresight the thought, the planning, the attention to every single detail was incredible to me, a person who appreciates planning. And the dignity. And oh, God, do we need some dignity back in life. And the formality. Yes, I'm for formality. Now, we're not a formal church. We don't have a liturgy and all that. The word formality comes from the word form. In the absence of form, I have found out there's one other option, chaos. So you either have some planning and some form, or you have absolute chaos. And America has, to a great degree, gotten rid of her formality, as you well know. But I looked at that, and I thought, oh, how I wish in our country we had the respect for tradition because tradition is good because tradition worked. That's the reason it became a tradition. That we respected our history and our heritage. They were openly showing a love for their country. And after several years now in America of everything about America's past being criticized and torn down, it was just refreshing to me to see somebody proud of their country. I'm still proud of my country, by the way. Even with all of its warts and flaws, this is the greatest place there's ever been on this planet. <clears throat> and so I thought that the whole thing, and I, I enjoyed it, and I, I was touched by it because it was a rebuke in some ways to our culture, the casualness of which we approach everything. When you die, 
have a funeral. You're not a dog that you just take the flesh out and get rid of it somewhere. You are made in the image of Almighty God. He gave you years on this earth. They ought to be remembered. They ought to be honored. Get a preacher, even if he's a poor one. Read the Bible and talk about the Scripture. Have prayers, thanksgiving for the life that was lived. No matter what kind of life it was, it's deserving of thanks for the years that God gave it oxygen and health, isn't it? And above all, share the gospel of Christ, the only hope that people have when there's a death, the only hope that they have. The custom now in America is don't even have a funeral. Somebody told me they went to a service recently in our community, and no preacher, no Bible reading, no prayer. Now, this is important. You may think I'm just ranting and I'm on a soapbox, but I'm observing this. As the man who's conducted probably more funerals than anybody in eastern South Carolina, I would say now, without boasting, I have some experience. And a, a service was held. No preacher, no Bible reading, no prayers. The funeral director said, does anybody want to say anything? Oh, boy. I've been through that, too. Don't do that. I heard a man use four-letter words in a funeral that I was in attendance at, a memorial service that I was in attendance at. And so I just was, I marveled at the respect and the, 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 the fact that the heritage of the country was acknowledged and there was such, uh, there was no loathing of British history, though it has much to loathe. They were not pulling down the statutes and expressing a lack of respect for the country. They were celebrating this woman's life, England's queen. Her name, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Mountbatten Windsor. That's her full name. Wouldn't you like to stick your head out the window and holler at your kids and, they, and call them all that instead of just Tommy or whatever it may be? And her title was Queen Elizabeth II, by the grace of God, queen of this realm and other realms and territories, head of the commonwealth, defender of the faith, of course, a reference to the fact that the ruling monarch in Britain is the head of the Church of England. And so, though she's not a theologian, she's in the position to defend the his history of the church and the history of the nation. Her, she reigned from June 2nd, 1953. She was 26 years old. And she was coronated on June 2nd, 1953. She reigned, get this, 70 years, 214 days, and died on September the 8th, 2022. I can't speak of her personal relationship to Christ. I didn't know her, obviously. But I do know that throughout her lifetime, she made many references to her belief in Christ and talked often of her love for the Holy Scriptures which she always referred to as the Holy Scriptures. In 70 years of public life, she was a model of womanhood. The people who served her in the palace said that she ne they never knew her to lose her temper one time. 
They never heard her use bad language one time. She was always kind and gentle. She was appropriate. I loved to see her the way she dressed, and, you know, bright lemon yellow and green, and, but always the purse, and everybody in the world was wondering what's in that purse, and she never told them. Always appropriate, dignified, a compassionate woman. Often she stopped and spent time with poor people, people that she felt she could encourage. There was never one hint of scandal about her in 70 years on her throne. Now, her family, the royal family, had been plagued with scandals, one right after the other, one affair one right after the other. Um, it involved her sister, Margaret, way back, and then her son, Charles, and then her son, Andrew, his right now under charges for uh, sexual abuse of various kinds here in this country. She also, her, her grandsons, scandal after scandal after scandal. And yet this woman seemed to be able to rise above that with a great life of moral example. She was remembered over and over during the services for her faithfulness to her duty. Over and over, they talked about, the people that knew her talked about her servant leadership and how that though she was the queen, she was at the top, she would stop and serve other people. And apparently, she really believed in this thing of service. At her coronation as a 26-year-old girl, she says, I give my life to the English people, to the people of this commonwealth. I, give, I will give you my life until the day I die. She gave, and she did. She never retired. She never stepped back. And obviously, the people of England knew that. At her death, they had a public, uh, uh, a public viewing or a, a visitation, and the public was invited Tens of thousands of people waited, listen to this, for up to 16 hours in a line to pass by her coffin, 16 hours. It was estimated that at the funeral and the uh, aftermath of it as they drove toward the burial, over 2 million people came and stood beside the road. You see a little bit of it there. And they stood there, and I was amazed by the crowds. There was a spirit of reverence. It wasn't uh, frivolous. It was, we're here to honor our queen. And you would see people throwing bouquets of flowers out in the road and upon the hearse. Tributes to her. An estimated four billion people have now watched that service on television since it since it, was, since it occurred. That's over half the people in the world, if you will stop and, and think about that a moment. At the service, it was held in Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey dates back to 1042, when it was built by Edward the Confessor and William the Conqueror, who helped in the building of it. It was completed 203 years later after it started in 1245. 
In that building, services have been held every day now for a thousand, almost a thousand years, just a few, a few years short of a thousand years. Every day at that building, there was, there's the reading of Scripture and prayers. And it being a state funeral as it was, I thought, this is going to be a very secular service. I don't even know if the name of Jesus Christ will be uttered in this service or not. I was so pleasantly surprised. I tell you, I listened and I praised God. It was thrilling to hear all the biblical truth that was spoken, that was declared to the world. And something I noticed, I thought it would be tribute after tribute to her, there was actually more Scripture read than there was comment about her. And I just praised the Lord as I sat there, and that's when I decided I should talk about that. There's an example there for us. And they read Scripture after Scripture. Every Scripture I could think of that dealt with, with uh, death and dying and so on was read in that service. I was so very impressed. I selected one of them. Psalm 103 and verse number 11. Psalm number 103 in your Bible. You have it open there, I think. And in that atmosphere, these words were read. As the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as the father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. He knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it's gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. And his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments, to do them. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Now, to have that read in that atmosphere, to me, was just very powerfully, powerfully moving. And then the prayers. So I looked up the prayers, and I copied fragments from them. Listen to these words that were spoken there. O merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, there's a doctrinal point. Who is the resurrection and the life in a secular environment in front of four billion people. We're talking about Jesus Christ being the resurrection and the life. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God for that. Who's heard that on television before? And then he continued, We meekly beseech thee, O Father, to raise us from the dead, our sister. There's the doctrine of the resurrection. Through Jesus Christ, who is the source of resurrection power, our mediator and our redeemer. And then in closing, Go forth, O Christian soul, from this world in the name of God the Father. Ah, the Father Almighty who created thee. There's the book of Genesis. In the name of Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, who suffered for thee. There's the blood atonement. 
in the name of the Holy Spirit who was poured out upon thee and anointed thee. There's the Holy Spirit. All the great doctrines proclaimed here before a nation and before four billion people. I tell you, I was just so thrilled. I think you can tell you it was a blessing to me. And because it was such an opportunity for the proclamation of the truth. And it and I expected so little. I've heard those state funerals, and they're, it's, it, they're just nothing. It's just a bunch of religious platitudes. But to hear the Word of God and to pray the great doctrines of the faith, I thought, how wonderful. This has got to be the Lord's joke. He's looking up above, and He is smiling down on this and saying, you know what? They think they're going to get rid of me, and they think they're not going to, people are not going to talk about me, and here's this rector standing up here in front of the whole world telling four billion people all the great doctrines of the Christian faith. I'll bet you there was a blessing in heaven that day. Great doctrines, the Trinity, the creation, Jesus' deity, His sufferings, the Holy Spirit, the resurrection. And billions heard the Word of God and the powerful proclamations of the Christian faith. You see, England is so spiritually dark. England is so confused spiritually. I was thinking, and I still know it to be a fact, worse than the United States. They were secular before America was. They tell me that the atheism rate in England is over 60%. That only 1% of the people ever attend church, usually only for a wedding or a funeral. And so we're talking about a nation that has been so thoroughly secularized it is just unbelievable to me that something like this could have happened there. It's providential, in fact. And the truth of God proclaimed, the gospel, maybe not as clearly as we would state it, but it was there and was proclaimed for billions of people. And watching the services spoke to my heart. There are three life lessons I learned in a few minutes that morning. Number one, the value and importance of every day and every action of my life. They continued to talk about her, uh, the scrupulous lifestyle. And it reminded me that every action of every day that I live either makes or unmakes my character. And that in one day I can blow my life, my ministry, my family, Everything, you can blow it in one day. Every day that I get up belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am to use it for Him. And then you couldn't watch that, the funeral of a 96-year-old woman who reigned over the commonwealth for all those years. You couldn't watch that for that long and not say, boy, this woman finished well. And the importance of finishing well, I remind you of that again as well. All those scandals and all those horrible things that we've read about in that royal family, and we've read about even in the churches, but here's a woman who appeared, as much as we can tell, to be very faithful to her duty, integrity in her life, faithfulness to her family. 
and faithfulness also to her faith from all that we can gather. And then I looked at her casket, and I was reminded of a third life lesson, and that is the certainty of death. That you can be born in a royal family. You can sit on a powerful throne for 70 years, and it still ends in dust. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. But it made me think, most of all, of my king. When I say my king, I mean my personal allegiance to a king. Not that he's mine. He's the king of anyone who wants to receive him as their savior, isn't he? But the queen reminded me that in America, we don't have a monarchy. And thank God. I was watching some of those people bowing, and I, I understand the respect angle, but I, I, I just don't ever plan to bow to any man. I plan to bow one time, and that's my knee will be bent to Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Savior, the Creator of the universe, my King. And I want to tell you a few things about my King before we go home today, because I thought, what a great opportunity for me to remind people about our king. And in the book of Isaiah, would you turn there with me? One of the most beautiful passages. There's any number of texts I could have used to do this. I could have turned to literally a hundred or hundreds of texts that would talk about our king and present him to you for a few moments. But I want you to look in Isaiah because we can keep it all right here close together. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse number 14, I want you to read about his supernatural birth, his supernatural birth. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. What I want you to know, and if your Bible doesn't say this, if you don't have a study Bible of some kind, write it in the margin there. This was written over 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. The prophet looked down through the tunnels of time, and the prophet said, there's going to be a baby born in Israel. And he didn't say when. 700 years from that time, over seven centuries later, a child was born. It was a miraculous birth. It was a unique birth. It was a birth like no person who ever has lived in human history had. It was the birth of a man to a virgin girl. The father was the Holy Spirit of God, according to Luke chapter 1. And the Holy Spirit of God touched the body of little Mary, a little Jewish girl living in a little backwater town, Nazareth. And she was impregnated, and she carried that baby for nine months and gave birth to him. And he is absolutely unique. Our king is absolutely unique among all the people who ever lived. He is not a man. He is the God dash man. He is 100% God, and he's 100% man, 
Jesus Christ, the virgin-born Son of God. And notice at the end of the verse, you call his name Emmanuel. And uh, almost every town or county has an Emmanuel Baptist church. I know around here they do. What does Emmanuel mean? It means that God has come to live with us. And in the person of Jesus Christ, Almighty God visited the planet 2,000 years ago. Do you really believe that today, ladies and gentlemen, that God came and lived in the person of Jesus Christ? Well, that's the basis of the Christian faith. He came here. An angel came and visited his mother and said, when he's born, name him Jesus, for he will take away the sins of the world. And then another angel came and visited his, his stepfather, Joseph, and he said, call him Jesus. And both the mother and father had a supernatural visit from an angel who told them what he was to be named. And the word Jesus simply means Savior. It means Deliverer, the one who will take away the sins of the world, as I preached to you about last week on the blood of Christ, a supernatural birth. But turn over a couple pages to chapter 9, and not only did he have a supernatural birth, he had a sinless life, a sinless life. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, unto us a child is born. Note that, a child. He's going to come as a little boy. He's going to be a baby. This is his humanity. But unto us a son is given. Ah, there's his deity because he is the son of God. He is human in his physical frame, but in dwelling that body is Emmanuel, God with us, the Son of God deity. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's a prophecy. It has not yet been fulfilled. And his names will be called what? Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Do you know what they said about him, even his enemies? No man ever spake like this man. No man ever gave us the wisdom of God as this man is dispensing to us. Have you ever thought about this? Since the world is round and has all these time zones, and it's day in one part and night in the other, and with millions of Christians that at any given moment, 24 hours a day, somebody has an open Bible and is scrutinizing the words of Jesus Christ. And they've been doing that for over 2,000 years. And have you considered that as they, can, as they consider and scrutinize the words of Jesus Christ, the only thing we've ever concluded is that those are words of truth. There's no error in those words. Nobody's ever found one error in what he said. The greatest wisdom, God-ordained wisdom was in his words. And you can listen to his counsel. You can listen to his guidance. You can follow his direction. He is the wonderful counselor. And then it says, notice the next phrase, he is the mighty God, the creator. And while he was on the earth, 
Tens of thousands of miracles were performed by him, so many that John wrote at the end of his gospel that if all the works of Jesus, the miracles that he did were recorded in a book, that all the books in the world wouldn't contain them. In other words, his good works were infinite. He's the mighty God who could speak the world into existence. And then he's the everlasting Father. And so you're probably thinking, how could he be the Son and at the same time be the Father? And that's because the second person of the Trinity, the Son, is also one with the Father. I and my Father are one. And so he's Son and Father simultaneously, if you will. He is the peace of uh, the Prince of Peace. And last week, I took you to the verse, Colossians 1.10, where that Jesus Christ shed his blood so that you and I might have peace with God individually. But not only is he, does he bring peace individually, the Bible also says here in verse 7, notice, of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end. So he not only brings peace to the individual soul, but he brings peace to us corporately, universally. He's going to bring peace that will never end. The wars will cease someday. And then it ends here with a promise. Note the promise at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. It is not you and me who are going to bring about the kingdom of God. I hear people stand up and say, we're trying to bring in the kingdom. Well, you can forget that. You're not going to have, you, don't, you and I don't have the power to bring in the kingdom. But the zeal of the Lord, the Lord's plan for all the future, gloriously here on the earth in the millennial kingdom and in heaven throughout all of eternity, the Lord is going to bring this about. The zeal of the Lord will perform it. And that's not the end, though, of what I want to tell you about our king. I want you to go to chapter 53. And so we have his supernatural birth, and we have his sinless life, but we also have here his substitutionary death. And I read to you from one of these greatest chapters. Oh, what a chapter. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Oh, here's one of the most precious verses in all of the Scripture. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. But he opened not his mouth. He's brought like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shares is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. Verse 10, and it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Stop and think about that. It was God who sent Christ to the cross to pay for your sin. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. 
He shall see his seed and prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He will see the travail, the suffering of his soul. He'll see the suffering that he endured at Calvary, and he will be satisfied. And my righteous servant, justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. My, what profound biblical truth the Lord's substitutionary death. I gave you the titles of Queen Elizabeth, and they were many. But my king, over 200 times, different names and titles are given in the Scripture that reveal his character. Eighty-four times alone in the New Testament, he's called the Lord Jesus Christ. Eighty-four times. And our king has made the greatest difference to more people than anybody who ever came and lived on this earth. And so we're here today, we say we're here to worship Him. We throw around these cliche phrases like, uh, well, we're here to bring glory to Him. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to lift you up, to focus you, to get you to see who Jesus Christ, our King, really is, the greatness and majesty and glory of His person today. My aim is that when you walk out of here this morning, your heart will swell with love for Him, that your allegiance to Him will be greater than your allegiance to anything or anyone on this entire planet that He will determine your decisions and your priorities. He will be the one who determines your values, if you will, in your life. And there's one other thing I want to show you about Him real quickly, and it's over in the book of Revelation, chapter number 18 or 19, which is it? Revelation chapter 19. And in verse 11, I saw a horse op uh, heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on it was faithful and true. And I skipped down to verse 16. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written. He is the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. The King of kings, the greatest title anybody could ever have. The King of all the other kings. The Lord to which every other royal family member will bow their knee someday. And he said, I'm coming back. Now, right now, he is the king. I'm referring to him as my king, our king, the king. But his rule and his reign right now is a spiritual reign. A sp he rules, he reigns over a spiritual kingdom. And the modern world rejects him because of that. They in the modern world of today, in the secular society we live in, a spiritual kingdom, well, there's nothing. The only reality is physical and material to the secular person. And so it's not a real reign that he has. And so today I read what they're saying about him, the imaginary man in the sky, they say, things like that. But for you and I who know him, and where He lives in our hearts, He is our life. I would pray that if called upon to do so, I would give my life for Jesus Christ. 
I, I want him to mean that much to me that I would be glad to give my life for him because our king has made more difference than anyone else who ever lived. And he's coming again, 1 Timothy 6 and 15 talks about him as the king of kings and lord of lords and the only potentate, the only ruler. And so he will return 318 times the New Testament says he's coming back. And I'm a little rapture weary right now. I've been talking about it ever since I started preaching. Do you know what? I haven't given up. He's going to come. 318 times in the New Testament alone, he prophesied, I'm coming back. And when he does, you know what? He's going to establish a global government. He's going to rule and reign with a rod of iron, the Bible says. He's going to remove the curse that we've been under. He is going to restore the earth to its primal condition. He's going to cast the devil into the lake of fire and all who reject the gospel. And his glory is going to be greater than Rome and greater than the English Commonwealth and greater than the United States of America. It'll all pale into insignificance in the light of the glory of his kingdom. And so I'm waiting on that. He's going to rule and reign not for 70 years, but throughout all the ages of eternity. And my question to you today is this. Is he your king? Is he your savior? I don't mean, have you just made a profession of faith and joined a church somewhere and you're kind of a nominal Christian who kind of rolls in here and says, well, I've done my duty for another week. Oh, I pray not. I pray not. I want you to love him. I want you to serve him. I want you to pray to him. I want you to trust him. I want you to believe him, my king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.